This week, the value of failed experiments. There's a lot of information trapped within those dark reactions, those failed reactions. And hungry humans, why we burn more calories than our ape cousins. Humans are spending something like 400 more calories a day than the other apes are. So it's, it's a massive amount of energy that we have available to us that the other apes just don't use. Plus, using ketamine to treat depression without the side effects. This is The Nature Podcast for May the 5th, 2016. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. It goes without saying that we love science here at The Nature Podcast, but then again, we don't actually have to do any of it. And something that many a student has realised about science, usually around halfway through their PhD, is that a lot of the time it just doesn't work. It might be because you did the experiment wrong, or your hypothesis was wrong, or in the case of chemist Alex Norquist, because you're looking for a needle in a haystack. But these fruitless experiments needn't be wasted. Sharmini Bundel rang Alex at Haverford College in the US to find out how his lab is using failed reactions to discover rare new materials. So what we do in my lab is we try to make new materials, new materials that contain combinations of reactants or combinations of chemicals that haven't necessarily been put together before. And we, we study these materials because there's a wide range of physical properties that these things can exhibit for a lot of different applications, a lot of different properties. So you're kind of trying to discover new materials that might be able to do really cool things. Right. Oftentimes things whose structures and compositions we can't predict in advance. It's unanticipated materials. Does it end up just having an element of trial and error, see what works? Absolutely. And, you know, a challenge in this chemistry is that there's many, many variables that we have to alter based upon an experiment. And there's just many dials to turn. And the question is, what do we turn first? It sounds like potentially quite a frustrating job. Well, I, I actually, I love it. But we fail, and we fail a lot, and we fail way more than we succeed if we use sort of a traditional definition of failure and success. And it's, it's all of these failures that really provide the basis for the successes that come later. And all of these data, all of these reactions, typically they live in lab notebooks written on paper on a shelf in a lab somewhere, sort of in the least accessible form one could almost have. So doing reactions with, say, negative results, that's going to help you as a chemist get a better idea. But what it means is that there's a lot of data sitting around that other people can't get at. And so your idea was, can we actually use that data? What we did was we created um, a database and sort of a, a web accessible form of this database. And then we just went through, you know, 10 years of, of historical lab notebooks inputting all of these reactions into this database. So that's a massive amount of data. And I guess that's why no one can actually fit all that in their head and make sense of it. Right. We, we have all these data. And, you know, it is, it's, you know, the data, there are too many to really comprehend properly. And that's where the machine learning comes in. And so what we do with machine learning is we use these different algorithms to look for patterns within the data. And we're able to pick up on some of these subtle properties, things that I had never considered before. So you'd already fed the machine all the different variables, but it can then go through and highlight one important one, like how the molecules react to an electric field. But then what do you do with that? We've calculated this this machine learning model, and it can really do two things. It can propose recommended reactions that, when tested experimentally, actually succeed more often than using sort of traditional approaches. And so we actually set up sort of a competition between reactions from the model, and then what 
we would do as chemists in the lab and the model one. The other thing that it can do is it can highlight what are the most important parameters. And it's from looking at those parameters that we're able to gain real fundamental understanding of the science involved. So it's not just helping you come to the outcome, it's helping you understand what's going on as well. Exactly. And it's, it's better reactions and a better understanding of the underlying chemistry together is sort of a powerful approach. And this sounds like it's really useful for you in your lab. Now you've got this computer software that can help you do your job more efficiently. What about everyone else? Well, the nice thing about the approach is that it's effectively generalizable to a lot of different types of chemistry and even not chemistry, right? The approach that we've devised is independent of the type of data that we necessarily give it. And is the basic software that you've developed something that you're sharing? It is, and so we can tailor sort of the web portal for whatever type of data that they want. And we've made all of our data accessible, right? All of those failed reactions that normally just sit on a lab notebook, well, now they're gonna be accessible to everybody. And the, the wider principle definitely seems to go way beyond chemistry. You know, the pragmatic part is, how do I make my reactions faster because I wanna make new compounds more effectively? You know, on the principled side, how do we as scientists deal with failures better? You know, the, the, the notion of negative results essentially being dark, being hidden in, in the way in which scientists communicate with each other. I mean, that's, that happens in all of science. You know, the literature is biased towards success, but there's always far more failures than there ever are successes. And there's a lot of information trapped within those dark reactions, those failed reactions. That was the pragmatic and principled Alex Norquist talking to Shamini Bandel about dark reactions. His paper is out in Nature this week. Check it out at nature.com forward slash nature. Also in the mag this week, there's a feature about the idea of a materials genome, predicting the recipe of new materials by analysing the ingredients of existing ones. That's at nature.com forward slash news. Coming up in the research highlights, Mars's valleys carved by boiling water and how peacocks keep their feathers so blingtastic. But first, here's Noah with a story involving brains, energy and maybe an excuse for us to eat more than chimps do. Compared with other apes, humans are great. OK, that's a bit of a value judgement. But biologically, we would do well in a game of AP top trumps. Here's researcher Herman Ponser from the City University of New York. We've got really big brains. We're highly physically active. We move a lot each day. Uh, compared to the other apes, we tend to have babies rapidly. <laughs> we're, the, we're the bunnies of the ape world, and we live a long time. So let's agree that humans are awesome. What scientists have not been able to work out is how we do it. Normally, having one beneficial trait means sacrificing another. Biologists call this a trade-off, but humans seem to have it all. Herman Ponzer and his team wanted to find out how humans find the energy to sustain all our great traits. I gave Herman a call at home to find out more. It was a holiday at the time, so if you listen carefully, you may be able to hear some cameos from Herman's son, who certainly seemed to have plenty of energy. Here's Herman. All these traits that sort of set us apart from the other apes, uh, they're all metabolically very expensive. Big brains are expensive. Uh, reproducing is expensive. Uh, long lives are expensive because we have to invest in keeping our bodies going. Uh, being physically active is metabolically expensive. All these things cost a lot of calories. And it, we seem to be kind of defying a fundamental rule in nature, which is that uh, usually when we see a, a species invest a lot in a, in a particular trait, uh, we see it having to invest less in some other trait. There's sort of a trade-off there. So an animal that reproduces really quickly tends to have a short lifespan. 
but humans seem to be defying that trade-off. We seem to be having our cake and eating it too. And the question is, how do we do it? And that's what you've been investigating in this particular study. You've been trying to finally answer this question. It's not a trade-off. What is it that's happening here? That's right. So we uh, asked the question, well, maybe it's not a trade-off. Could it be that humans have just increased our metabolic rate? We've sort of ramped up the whole engine so that we can just get a lot more done. And so how did you go about that? What was your approach? Yeah, so we used two measurements of energy expenditure. Uh, One was this thing called uh, total energy expenditure, which is the total number of calories you burn every day. And the other thing we looked at uh, were old uh, data collected, some some of them in the 1930s. We went back sort of into the archives and asked uh, about uh, something called basal metabolic rate, which is the energy you use um, when you're just about sleeping uh, at your lowest level of energy expenditure. And so what did you find when you looked at these things? When we looked at total energy expenditure, which hadn't ever been looked at in humans and apes, uh, we found, sure enough, humans are spending something like 400 more calories a day, even after we correct for size, uh, than the other apes are. So it's, it's a massive amount of energy that we have available to us that the other apes just don't use. Um, and then when we looked back to the archives, we found a funny thing. Uh, people had sort of been under the impression from some older studies that there weren't differences in, in basal metabolic rate, but in fact, we found that there were. Uh, and so when we looked at humans versus chimpanzee basal metabolic rates, for example, we did see a difference that kind of matched and, and made some sense of the total energy expenditure differences. It surprised me that no one had ever studied total energy expenditure before. If there's been this long-standing confusion about why we're able to do the things we're able to do, that seems like the first pot of call to me. I think this is a case of technology kind of catching up with the, with the interesting questions. We use a technique called doubly labeled water, which is not cheap, um, but and it hasn't really been available until the last sort of decade or so. And so uh, we're finding new interesting uses for it, including this project. And I might be asking a question I'm going to regret here, but are you able to explain to me roughly how that technique works? Absolutely. Here, I'll give it a swing. We enrich water with two isotopes, deuterium and oxygen-18. Those are both safe, non-toxic, not radioactive or anything like that. And of course, water is H2O, right? So when we use an isotope for some of the H's and an isotope for some of the O's, we can track the way that your body uses the, the water. We have an ape or a human drink some of that enriched water, and then we collect urine samples over the course of a couple weeks, and we watch the body flush out the hydrogen isotope and the oxygen isotope. Now, here's the trick. You flush the oxygen isotope out faster because you lose it not just as H2O, as water, but you also lose it as CO2 that you breathe out. And you can't burn calories without making CO2. And so when we compare the rate of loss of the hydrogen isotope to the oxygen isotope, the difference in the rates gives us the CO2 production and bang, you've got the calories per day. Okay, so this is all fascinating stuff. My big question is why? Why is it that we've, we've come to a place where we've got this higher metabolic rate by comparison to other apes? Well, I and mean, that's a great question. We can imagine that there's always selection pressure to reproduce faster. There's always selection pressure to be a bit smarter. And we think that a couple of important traits have come along uh, that have allowed us to sort of you know, ramp up our metabolic rates. One is we've changed the way that we get our food. So we target foods like meat and like tubers and root vegetables. Uh, and, and we cook our food and all these things make the energy, the food that we eat much more energy dense, more calories per bite. Uh, and then secondly, uh, we share our food, which means that if we come home empty handed at the end of the day, we won't starve, we'll share with somebody else. And then third, 
Um, we've also evolved this propensity to put on body fat. And this ability to put on body fat that we have, is that something that other apes don't do? That's right. I mean, every animal carries a little bit of fat at least. It's an essential to do that. Uh, but compared to the other apes, we are prodigious in the amount of fat that we put on. And we put on fat as a sort of uh, an insurance policy so that we can have these high metabolic rates. That's what we think. Yeah, that's what we think. So does that mean people gain weight because we're smart? <laughs> Ah, I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's an interesting way to put it. I, yeah, I think those two things kind of go together evolutionarily. That was Herman Ponser at the City University of New York talking to Noah Baker. Enjoying the show so far? Well, if so, you're just a couple of clicks away from making our day. Just click subscribe on the podcast homepage or in iTunes to have each week's episode delivered automatically to your device. And if you want to leave us a review, that would be even more awesome. Still to come in the news chat, human embryos grown for longer than ever in the lab, and they're starting to get close to a legal line in the sand. But before that, it's time for the research highlights with Cory Locke. Peacocks shake their tail feathers in a way that maximizes their shimmering appearance. Researchers recorded high-speed video of 14 peacocks to study the physics of tail feather vibrations. They found that the birds rub the feathers together at an average frequency of 25.6 hertz. This generated a distinct sound and shimmering effect. In the lab, the researchers noticed that the feathers resonate when vibrating at this frequency. This increases the vibrational amplitude of the feathers and enhances the shimmering. The eye spots in the tail feathers lock together with tiny hooks, which hold the eye spots steady against an iridescent background. You can find the study in the journal PLOS ONE. Images of Mars show gullies and hillside streaks on the planet's surface, and many think they are caused by flowing liquid water. But new research suggests that boiling water could be the culprit. Scientists set up a laboratory chamber that simulated the thin atmosphere of Mars. They melted ice on top of a pile of sand in the chamber and found that the water boiled as it seeped into the sand. This caused sand grains to tumble downhill and form channels that look like the streaks seen on Mars. This happened even with small amounts of water. The scientists say that we shouldn't assume that Earth-like quantities of liquid are needed to form these Martian features. The study was in the journal Nature Geoscience. Finding drugs that reduce the symptoms of depression is no easy task. No one drug works for all patients. And, making matters worse, it can take weeks or even months before a drug's effects kick in. That's why researchers got so excited when, about a decade ago, the first studies suggested that ketamine could offer faster relief in a matter of hours. Todd Gould at the University of Maryland in Baltimore, USA, has been looking into ketamine's antidepressant properties. In clinical trials, typically the patients who receive ketamine uh, have failed other medications, have many times failed electroconvulsive therapy. And in those patients, many of uh, whom also have suicidal thoughts, ketamine acts very rapidly. So within an hour or two, reverses and in some cases eliminates depressive symptoms. And the effects of ketamine typically last for about a week. But in spite of this paradigm shift, there's a catch. Ketamine has been around for some time and is used extensively, both in a medical setting as an anaesthetic and recreationally as an intoxicant. It can provoke hallucinations and a funny out-of-body feeling called dissociation. Not ideal when what you actually want is an antidepressant drug. 
Here's Todd again. It's approved medical uses as an anesthetic, and its mechanism of action by which it exerts anesthetic effects are through the NDA receptor. And it was just uh, assumed then that uh, when ketamine was discovered to have antidepressant actions, that it was also through the NMDA receptor. How did you realise then that its action couldn't really be through this NMDA receptor? Yeah, so we, we used a couple approaches. One was we used another drug which binds the same site on the NMDA receptor that ketamine does. And it did not have ketamine-like antidepressant action in our mouse models. But you spotted a difference between how the sexes were responding to ketamine, and that gave you a clue as to what might be happening. A couple other laboratories had shown that lower doses of ketamine elicited antidepressant effects in females compared to males. And so what we did is we did a study assessing levels of ketamines and its key metabolites, with metabolites being chemicals produced by the breakdown of ketamine in the body. And so we found that levels of ketamine itself were nearly identical in males and females. But we found that hydroxynorketamine was about three times higher in uh, female circulation as well as the female brain uh, compared to males. And so this gave us an important clue that metabolism may be linked to the antidepressant actions of ketamine. So then you tested your answer by injecting that metabolite into mice to see how it worked on its own. That's right. Um, so we injected it and we uh, compared it to ketamine itself. Uh, we used a number of different behavioral outcomes that are related to antidepressant efficacy or, or depression. And we found that in all the tests that we looked at, the metabolite had exactly the same effects and similar potency to ketamine itself. And importantly, we also found that the metabolite does not bind to the NMDA receptor and does not functionally inhibit the NMDA receptor. So this sidestepping of the NMDA receptor allows you to avoid the side effects of ketamine while still getting its antidepressant effects. What do you want to look at now that you've kind of identified this active ingredient of ketamine? The uh, direct target of the metabolite has not been identified yet. So that's something that's of major interest. And then finally is a approach to get this particular hydroxynorketamine into the clinic. And while that's something that's going to take um, a number of years, uh, we are hopeful moving forward because hydroxynorketamine has been in humans for decades as a byproduct of uh, administering ketamine. So far, all this work has been on mice. How confident are you that it would translate to humans? Personally, I'm optimistic, but I'm also realistic. There's There's a big disconnect between what works in mice and what works in humans. And so the necessary next step then is to uh, uh, take this metabolite to, to human studies. That was Todd Gould. Find out more about this research by checking out the paper. You can find that, of course, at nature.com forward slash nature. Finally this week, it's the news chat and Ewan Calloway joins us in the studio. Hello, Ewan. Howdy. We talked in back chat, which just came out last week, we talked about how the fuss over editing human embryos was kind of dying down. But no sooner did we do that than another two papers have brought human embryos firmly back into the spotlight. Yep. This this week, we've got two papers, one in Pairing in Nature, one in Nature Cell Biology, reporting that they can uh, culture human embryos for up to 13 days 
Previously, researchers have only been able to culture human embryos for nine days, four days, big deal. Well, the big deal is, is the fact that um, the US, UK, and other countries that regulate this sort of research, they don't allow you to go past 14 days. And the researchers only stopped at 13 to avoid kind of crossing this, this threshold. So it kind of raises this question of how far should we go, how far can we go in, in culturing human embryos before destroying them. For people to be able to learn more about embryology, basically. Exactly, exactly. Um, how different cells develop, um, how different layers form or don't don't form, um, what genes are turned on and off and when, you know, all these interesting questions uh, that we don't really know the answer to because we haven't really been able to study human embryos in depth in, in culture. Now, as you said, uh, the record before was about nine days. The researchers voluntarily stopped their experiments at 13 days, only four days different. But what did they learn about the development of the, of the embryo um, during these four days? Yeah, when you're getting to this stage um, of, of early human development, you're getting to the point where not all the cells are, are the same and you can't just break off cells and they can form their own embryos. So you're starting to see the beginnings of, of specialization and forming of different layers. And this taking this uh, embryo uh, a little bit further, they noticed that this like clump of cells developed, I think it was around day 10, and then it disappeared at, at day 12, I think, was, was their finding. They have no idea what it does, but it, it takes up as much as like 10% of, of the human embryo. So that's, you know, that's something that couldn't have been done without this technology, without this, this breakthrough. Now, let's talk briefly about this 14-day rule. At the moment, there's a rule in many countries uh, that you can't grow or culture human embryos for longer than 14 days. And this is the beginning of a stage called gastrulation, where the cells kind of start to reorganize themselves along this body axis. What's the issue here? Obviously, this research is coming closer and closer to this this boundary. The 14-day limit, my reading on it is that it's it's semi-arbitrary. You're right that it coincides with this process, right, called gastrulation and this formation of something called the primitive streak. So it's something that you can actually see. But, like, who's to say that, you know, prior to this point, um, you just got a bag of cells and after this point you have, a hu- you know, what will go on to be a human being with all the moral uh you know all the moral calculus that get, that goes into that. That that's what seems a little bit arbitrary. Now that we can go past, possibly go past fourteen days, do lawmakers change it because now the technology is there? Who gets to decide? I think it'll be lawmakers um, that that decide this with input, obviously, from scientists, bioethicists, the public. Some people want to hear what religious leaders think about this. It'll be interesting to see a kind of what kinds of discussions these papers catalyze. Well, and hopefully we'll be chronicling some of that discussion on nature.com slash news. Now, uh, finally, we're going to stick with the topic of fertility, but we're moving species somewhat dramatically to the northern white rhino. Yeah. So northern white rhinos, they are a subspecies of rhinoceros, um, live in kind of uh, central Africa at the, the headwaters of the Nile River. I, sh- I should say lived there. The last one seen in the wild was at a national park in the Democratic Republic of Congo in the early 2000s. I mean, they're down to three, a mother, a daughter, and their father slash grandfather. They're living in a three square kilometer parcel in a nature conservancy in Kenya that's patrolled 24-7 by armed guards. This species, this is a species on the brink. Um, and these three rhinos, never mind that they're all very, very related, none of them can, can breed naturally. The two fem- females can't bear a calf. The male is quite old, has low sperm count. And so this is a species that is, is, is extinct. 
Unless people intervene, intervene quite dramatically. Unless they intervene quite dramatically, uh, which is what your story <laughs> is about. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So the only hope of saving this subspecies is through reproductive technologies and quite advanced reproductive technologies. So there's a plan afoot that was kind of rolled out in the zoo journal um, this week that I kind of wrote about, but people have been talking about this for some time. And the idea is, is that we take the eggs of the two females that are left and the sperm of this one male that's left and sperm from, I think, four or five other males that are in freezers that have been kept. And we start doing uh, in vitro fertilization and bear that calf in a closely related southern white rhinoceros. This is a subspecies that lives more in like southern Africa. Quite a few barriers in the way. Nobody's been, ever been able to uh, successfully do IVF to the point where you implant an, an embryo in a rhinoceros. But um, even if they succeed in making some rhinos from the two females and these sperm cells. It's not a very genetically diverse population. And so they have an even more exotic twist where they're going to take, they've got skin cells um, and various cell cultures from another, from about a dozen total northern white rhinos in freezers around the world. And they're gonna use stem cell reprogramming technology where they're gonna turn them into embryonic-like stem cells or induced pluripotent stem cells, turn those into egg and sperm implant them in a surrogate and create kind of a genetically diverse population. You know, you could, you, could, you could call this plan ambitious. You could call it fanciful. You could call it a pipe dream. Uh, I've heard all of these things. But, I mean, this is the, this is, uh, the cutting edge of trying to, to save species with reproductive technologies. When I was at university, one of my exam questions in a biology paper was, Provocatively, why save the panda? And I'm just going to ask you the same thing about the northern white rhino. Why save the northern white rhino? That's a good question. It's one that conservationists are actively debating because even though this plan sounds fanciful, uh, the various the zoos involved are doing preparatory steps to lead to it. And they'll say the northern white rhinoceros is kind of should be a mascot for the lengths that we will go to to save animals for whom we've caused their extinction. Um, poaching is a major pressure on on northern white rhinos. Other conservationists I've spoken with have said that that's a very dangerous precedent, that if we can bring back the northern white rhinoceros, uh, that's a big if, if we can do that, it'll be saying, telling businesses and governments and others that we can let a species go to the brink and we've got a technological fix. It it's really gets to the heart about what conservation is in the 21st century. Ewan, thank you for joining us. To keep up to date with all the latest science news, make sure to head over to nature.com news. That's all for this week. Next time, colliding a particle with something that isn't really there. Like colliding a donut with a donut hole? Physicists don't write in, she'll get it by next week. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. If this episode of The Nature Podcast has whet your appetite for scientific research, check out Scientific Reports, the open access home for all scientifically sound research. They publish articles from all areas of the natural and clinical sciences. If you publish with them, you can expect fast and fair peer review and great exposure with over 2 million visitors a month to the website, nature.com srep. If you're one of the visitors, you can expect studies ranging from how to tell apart African from Asian elephant tusks using handheld X-ray devices to a study suggesting that pain tolerance correlates with how many friends you have. For all this and more, visit scientific reports at nature.com/srep.